what's up and welcome back storytellers. I am so happy you've tuned in to today's episode. If you're enjoying the show, I have a super quick favor to ask. If you haven't yet hit the subscribe button and submitted a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to do so. Not only do I love reading your reviews, but this community is also truly something so special and your reviews give new listeners a glimpse of what it's like to be a part of 88 Cups of Tea. The more ratings and reviews that we get, I hear that it really helps with the algorithm to allow new listeners to find us and ultimately feel less alone in their creative journeys by joining our community. Thank you to each and every one of you for taking the time. I so appreciate you. To keep up with all things 88 Cups of Tea, make sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea. We love posting fun Instagram stories, announcing new podcast episodes and featured articles and essays, along with our favorite quotes from those episodes and written pieces. And my favorite part about Instagram is our Instagram story takeovers from your favorite guests that we've had on the show. So make sure to head over to Instagram.com slash 88 Cups of Tea to join in on the fun. If you're looking for a super intimate space where you can meet fellow storytellers and experience what it's like to be a part of our community, come hang out with us in our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We check in with each other on the daily and have weekly threads where you can update each other about your work in progress and your big wins for the week and a lot more. If these things put a smile on your face, come hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We celebrated our four year anniversary here at 88 cups of tea and set aside something super special just for our Patreon family. Four super storytellers won the chance to interview for a 10 minute segment to be stitched at the end of our upcoming podcast episodes. The first segment featured the lovely Melissa Bovee, and you can tune into her interview at the end of Jason Reynolds' episode. Our second segment featured storyteller Sarah Adams, which you'll find attached to our most recent episode with Christine Riccio. For today's segment, we have Angeline Bully from our 88 Cups of Tea community. Angeline and I chat about the exciting project she's working on, how she's overcome challenges throughout her writing career, and she dishes heartwarming advice for those of you who are about to jump into the querying trenches. Since the time of our recording, the publishing rights for her book, Firekeeper's Daughter, were acquired by Henry Holt's books for Young Readers Macmillan in a 12-way auction. Look out for Angeline's segment at the end of this episode. Now on to today's conversation, we have Maggie Steve Otter, the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Raven Cycle series, the Shiver Trilogy, and the Scorpio Race. In our conversation, Maggie shares her love for storytelling and gives us a snapshot of her self-taught journey to becoming a bestselling author. She chats about her love of music and how she weaves that in with her love of writing. We talk about the most difficult challenge Maggie's had in her life, and from that, we were inspired to discuss how to overcome brain fog and emotional fatigue to reach your writing goals. Further into our conversation, we chat about breaking down societal norms in her writing, how to craft vivid descriptions in your stories for emotional resonance, and how she plotted out her series that still gave her freedom to explore other storylines. She also shares the biggest piece of advice for debut writers that you don't want to miss. Storytellers, be sure to check out the writing prompt that Maggie took the time to exclusively create for our community. Her writing prompt will help you if you're stuck on the very first chapter of a new project. So to download the prompt, head over to her show notes page at 88 slash podcast slash Maggie dash Steve Otter. 
Now let's dive right in. Why don't we start off with how you first fell in love with storytelling? I know it's a really grand question, but the first memory, that'll be awesome. We'll start from there. I actually don't remember a time when I didn't want to be a storyteller, which might be a very stereotypical answer, I suppose. I remember when I was a kid, I knew that I wanted to be a novelist. And I not only knew that I wanted to be a novelist, but in my head, I had this grandiose idea that I would be the kind of novelist that sold those really fat, pulpy paperbacks where the author's name and the title of the book are are foiled and you find them in cardboard stands when you're going through the airport or or the the supermarket. That was my dream. So I want you to imagine me from the very moment that I could actually begin typing away on my dad's word processor, that this was my dream to write pulp fiction, basically. And so I, uh, I always knew not only that I wanted to write stories, but that they weren't for me because those kinds of books don't really become what they are until they have an audience. So I had a good sense ever since I was a kid that I not only wanted to tell stories, but tell stories for people. Were your parents super encouraging about this? I have a very clear memory of my father coming up to me one day when I was typing away on this novel, hammering away at this uh, word processor. And he said, so Maggie, what do you want to be when you grow up? He didn't say Maggie. My name wasn't Maggie then. He said, so Heidi, that was my name. I changed it legally when I was 16. So he said, so Heidi, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, oh, I want to be a writer. And I remember very clearly that he answered, oh, so you want to be poor. (laughs) In his defense, I remember the novel I was working on. It was about two dogs test driving a car. They were Scottish Terriers. It was a red Porsche. And the first line of dialogue was, it like hugs the road. So maybe not the stuff of, you know, really rent paying fiction. I was going to say that's exactly what my parents would say when I told them I wanted to act. My mom's like, you want to be a beggar on the street? Go ahead. (laughs) Parents are great. You know, I say that, though, but my parents were actually incredibly encouraging, but they encouraged it as a hobby. And they really prioritized hobbies in general. All of my siblings, I've got two brothers and two sisters. We all have an incredible amount of hobbies because we were encouraged to be well-read and well-learned. And all of those things were considered to be great priorities. So it didn't matter that they didn't make money. That was still valuable. But we were supposed to learn that, yes, you were never going to make money with those hobbies, which was actually kind of a good lesson to learn because... I never had that kind of panic that, oh my gosh, I'm going into college and how am I going to make a living as a novelist because it takes so long to get published. I always assumed it was going to be this side gig forever. Okay. There's so much to unpack here, first of all, but I am so curious. I need to know why you changed your name from Heidi to Maggie. Oh my gosh. All right. So I feel like people are their names. Do you feel like your name? You know what? I never did. I got picked on a lot because it was very Chinese sounding and I was one of the only Asians in my school. So I really hated my name and I wanted to disassociate myself from my name and get a very Americanized name. So for me, it never really felt that way. It's only as I got older, I'm like, all right, I'm I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. You know, it's different. It's cool. And I'm starting to really, you know, embrace my culture more as I'm getting older. So I'm finally now sitting into my name. But that's like over 30 years old. Like you, you're, you were 
15, you said, right? 16, you said, 16. 16. For the record, I think that Yin is a lovely name. So Thank you. I'm glad you didn't change it. Thank I actually you. also think that Heidi is a lovely name for someone, yeah. not for me, but I never felt like it. It wasn't that I hated the name. I just thought I look in the mirror, you're supposed to say who you are. I always mm-hmm. was super big on the idea of imagining people as characters. We do this all the time. I would say, all right, if this person was inserted into a book, what would they be like? Would you think of them as the villain or the hero? And I'd do it to myself too. And I thought, I would not name myself Heidi. And so this all came to a head. I also was a very kind of dark souled child. I would wear black all the time and tell people I was mourning the death of modern society, all of this. And Heidi is like this bright, sprightly name with pigtails, right? And it all came to a head when I was 16 and I walked into an eye doctor's appointment and the receptionist looks at the name and she goes, Heidi. Heidi Hummel, what an adorable name. It sounds like a figure skater. And I walked right out of the appointment. I didn't even do the appointment to where my mom was waiting in the car and said, Mom, I am changing my name. And because I had been named after one of my dad's ex-girlfriends, she said yes. Where was that agreement in the first place to say yes to that? (laughs) What? Your mom is so nice. I would not be having that. I'm sorry. I find it hilarious. And they said, well, it's just because the name was so beautiful. And I said, Heidi, really? Really? It was so beautiful? We're not talking Esmeralda here. Anyway, so that's how I changed my name. They said, wait, so you want to change your name? What do you want to change it to? Because I'm sure they thought that it was going to be something outrageous and overblown. And when I said Margaret, Maggie for short, they said, okay, fine. You know what? That's that's fine. That's the dumbest thing we've ever heard, but fine. And then for, I was terrible for two years afterwards. People who are trying to train people not to use their dead names will be familiar with this because it was just the idea of they, whenever they tried to get a hold of me by saying, hey, Heidi, it's time for dinner. I would just studiously sit there until they went through and said, Maggie, it's time for dinner. Pretend like I didn't even hear them. I must have been terrible to live with is all I can assume. Okay. So this is really, really impressive to me because you have that much persistence to be like, nope, this is my new name. And that's it. Everyone's going to call me that name from now on. Was this something where you did a lot of research on Margaret? I actually did. I went, my mom does a ton of genealogy and I went back through the various uh, ancestors we had and I looked at the names and I thought, you know what? Yes, I will take Margaret. She's uh, from Northern Ireland, Margaret Potter. And I always liked the nickname Maggie. And I thought, you know what? As a character, Maggie, yes, I am that person. And it's true. I feel very much like my name. It is hilarious now, though, because people do call me Margaret when they're upset with me. And that also includes the Raven Cycle fandom. They will do this when they're excited or angry. They will say, Margaret, I can't believe what you're doing. I, I appreciate that they have developed this, this closeness. All of my, my parents also call me Margaret now when they're upset with me. My husband will say, Margaret, you're driving like a maniac. I've never heard of anyone changing their own name at 16 years old. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate you bringing us into that detail. All right. Now I want to unpack writing and just knowing that your parents, uh, very similar to mine, was just very much like, okay, reading is a great hobby. Arts is a great hobby. Fantastic. Forget about thinking of it as a money-making thing, a real, quote unquote, real life kind of career. So how was that moment like for you? in that timeline of basically getting one, everyone on board and especially yourself knowing that, okay, I can do this. Well, I was homeschooled from sixth grade on. So I had an enormous amount of unsupervised free time. We lived in the middle of nowhere, Virginia, in the middle of cornfields. We moved 18 times before I was 18. We were just, uh, it was, 
we were like a traveling show. Basically, my father is an emergency room doctor. And so he would travel from a hospital to hospital working as a locum physician and we would travel with him. And so I would have this long list of chores that we would have to do every single day. This was considered training for real life and helping my mom around the house. We would have our homework that we were supposed to sit and do with her. But the way homeschooling works, and I don't know if you've had any other homeschooled authors on the podcast, but at the time, what would happen is a big box of all of your teaching supplies would come. All the books that you were supposed to read, all the paperwork that you were supposed to do, all of your assignments, a big fat teacher's manual. And your parent or whoever was running the homeschooling group is supposed to read the assignments. And then they're supposed to dole them out through the course of the month. Every month you would get the school in a box. And so my other uh, siblings would sit there and work with my mother and have to be dragged through it. But I knew I wanted to have time to write these novels, right? That was the goal, writing novels. And the box would arrive, I would open it up. And for about 36 hours straight, I would just mainline my schoolwork. I would go through the teacher manual myself. I would read all the assignments. I would write all the papers and then I wouldn't sleep through all of it. I was very dedicated. Then I would have the entire rest of the month to myself, right? While all of my siblings were doing their homework, I got to write my novels. And the goal was to write novels. I thought in my head, well, I will do this. I'll become that commercial novelist by the time I'm 50. That's the goal is to way out there as a doddering soul, I'll hit the bestseller list. It will be thrilling. So I don't know. I had such far off goals. And I also was a, um, a musician. I still am. And I knew the thing about playing musical instruments is that you have to give yourself hours to get good at it. Hours upon hours, days upon days, years upon years. You would never sit down at a piano and think that you would just begin playing a Bach minuet without ever looking at a piano. So I always thought of writing as a skill, as a craft. And so I never had the urge at that beginning to get my stories out there before then. I thought that this was my apprenticeship, basically. I was spending these hours and years getting myself to where I could write stories that other people would actually want to read them. All the listeners are talking about how skilled you are with your craft, how skilled you are with your writing. So during this time, you were practicing and you saw it as an apprenticeship. Can you tell me about how old uh, around this time? I know you were homeschooled sixth grade onwards, you mentioned, right? So then how was it that you were able to develop the actual technical techniques to be a very well-written author? Well, first of all, your readers are very kind. So thank you, readers, for all of your nice comments on my writing. I appreciate that. You should know that I was terrible as a writer, though, as a teenager. I was awful, absolutely embarrassing and cringy. I remember finding a manuscript that I wrote when I was 16. It was a thriller. At the time, I was really into writing political thrillers. This one was following a big kerfuffle, the Irish Republican Army. The introduction had explosions and terrorists and uh, policemen. Women and children were screaming and dogs and cats running underfoot and a flag flying poignantly overhead. And um, uh, the person that I chose to tell that story, the point of view that I wrote, I often ask uh, students, I'll set them up for this. I'll say, that's what I found. Who did I choose to tell the story? And then they'll always laugh and say, the dog. And I said, no, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't that bad. No, I was this bad. I chose the flag to be my point of view character for that. They were bad. They were really incredibly bad. But I... The thing about I'm also an artist and one of the things that you have to learn about 
creating art is there's a huge stage in art making that's the ugly stage. Basically, it's where you're doing your prep work. It's moving all the big pieces into place and you're starting to lay things down. And this is when it's awful for someone to walk in from the outside and look at your work and see it because it looks awful. A temptation you can be to rush through this stage to make it look prettier for the outside eye sooner. But you actually, you have to live in that ugly stage. You need to do all of that prep work. And if you try and rush to the pretty stage, you're actually not going to be as pretty at the end. So this long teen writing thing was me moving these big chunks into play. So even though these early manuscripts were so bad, what I was learning was, I mean, even with that flag point of view, what it was like to see things from different points of view, to look at a scene from different points of view, which you can see in the Raven cycle, which is multi-point of view. I was learning how to do pacing. I was learning how words on the page will actually control how fast a reader will move through a story, et cetera, et cetera, just by trying on different hats, but no single novel that I wrote. And by the time I went to college at 16, I had over 30 of them. No single novel actually did all of these things well, which is why they were bad. And if at any stage I'd actually been trying to finish these novels to be decent for the outside eye, if I hadn't been using them to learn, I think I wouldn't have learned as much, actually. Learning in that vacuum made me able to be more inventive instead of trying to soften things for a, a reader. Now, that said, I did try and become um, a creative writing major in school. Actually, first, I tried to become a music major. I thought, remember, I didn't think I could do this for a living. I thought that I would do is I would write soundtracks for a living, which is a much more valuable career, I'm sure. And I remember I, I tried out for music uh, classes uh, for the music major and they listened to me play the piano and they said, we're sorry, you're not good enough at playing to either be a music major or even to take music lessons here. We're sorry. Now, piano wasn't really my instrument. I was actually a competition bagpiper in college, but oh, still wow. I tried out piano. But I was not phased. I went to the art department and I dropped off my portfolio and they looked at it and they said, you know what? Uh, we're sorry. Your art is not actually good enough for you to be an art major. And actually you're uh, not really good enough to take art classes as a non-major either, really. And so only then did I actually go to the English department and drop off the best of my novels at the time. And they didn't get back to me. I had to get back to them. And they said, yeah, we are. We we read it. Um, have you thought about being a business major? You're kidding. <laughs> so I was a history major in college. I didn't take any classes in art or writing or music while I was in college. And I actually haven't done anything but make my living as except for one of those things for my entire life. That's all I've done. Hold on. During this entire time, when you're going from one department to another, to another, to another, you said that you're competitive bagpiper. And was that an instrument that you started learning when you were at home for years and years and years to get to that level to be competitive? Yes, I play a bunch of different instruments, but the bagpipes are definitely the hardest. The thing about me that probably explains everything else is I love learning. I love the process of learning a new thing. I find that so exciting and rewarding. Uh, I love to pick things up and tool around with them until I get good at them. With the pipes, I remember I already played a bunch of different instruments and my father had just bought a set of Highland bagpipes and he had booked a whole section of lessons. And then he got a new job and he didn't have time to do them. So he looked at all of us kids and he says, okay, 
I can't return the pipes and the lessons are already paid for. One of you lot has to learn how to play the pipes. And I don't think I so much stepped forward as I didn't notice that everyone else stepped back. So here I was and I took one lesson and I was awful. I was so bad. I was so used to picking up a musical instrument and at least getting it to make a sound. Because once you've learned one, I don't know if you play any musical instruments. I used to play piano and flute. Yeah. Great. So once you learn one, it becomes a little easier to learn the next one. The pipes, they didn't care if I knew anything with other musical instruments. And so I was so bad and that became the challenge. And that was the reason why I threw myself into it. So yeah, I used to practice for four hours every Ah. single day. Pity our neighbors. You had a link to your SoundCloud on your website because I know you said you play multiple different instruments. So then are those songs, everything you put together, you produced? I only recently actually finished up my recording studio over my garage. It sounds very fancy to say, yes, my recording studio. And I do love it. I really do. But really, it came about because I had been working with Scholastic Audio for my audiobooks for the last decade. Oh my gosh, a decade. Yes. And they do an amazing job. I love the audiobook for the Scorpio races in particular. When I first heard it, it was as if it was a story that had been written by someone else and it was being given back to me. It was such an incredible gift. I love those narratives. And I also love Will Patton, who does The Raven Cycle and the upcoming Called on the Hawk. He's an amazing, amazing narrator. But Scholastic Audio was cool enough to say, hey, wait, you're a musician. Do you want to um, give us some music to be the intro and outro music for the audiobooks? And what I loved about this is I hadn't had a band in a really long time. And this gave me such a great excuse once a year to, you know, head into a studio with friends and family and put together a track and, you know, just have jam. But I ended up building my own recording studio because I got right up to the end of the deadline on all the Crooked Saints. And I realized they said, where's your track? And I thought, where did the year go? What's happening? And I couldn't get into any of the recording studios. They were all booked. And at the very same time, I got a bonus payment, a small bonus payment for one of my audiobooks. And I felt like this is a sign. And I took that money and I used it to furnish my little recording studio. And so since then, all the Crooked Saints and every track on from that is me doing everything from top to bottom. It's been a crazy learning experience, but I love it. I'm We're hoping to actually spend more time, my brother and I in particular, and put stuff together. That's my next midlife crisis probably. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. And he's familiar with music too. Yeah, all of our siblings were encouraged to pick up a, a musical instrument. So we were like a Celtic Von Trapp family. You could pick us up and we could play for old folks' homes. You guys are so talented. This is insane to me. That's not very common when people have multiple different passions. It doesn't always weave in together. No, for sure. That was actually the biggest conflict I had as a teen was I thought, well, there's a Maggie that loves music and a Maggie that loves art and a Maggie that loves writing. And I haven't seen anybody that does all of these things. And so probably two of these Maggies have to die is really what it comes down to. So I wish I could have, I could go back to her and say, no, no, it's going to be cool. It's going to be fine. All of those hours that you spend kind of fussing over that, it's going to be fine. Congrats once again. I think that's so awesome to actually have everything come together so nicely like this. With your writing, from homeschooling, you throwing yourself and finishing all your work so early, dedicating so much time to your apprenticeship, giving yourself the freedom to play and be creative with your writing and just learning, then going in college just from department to department, 
then you found your way back to writing. So by this time, I'm assuming, I'm, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your parents were fully on board and supportive by now, knowing that you did do your best trying with every other department and then coming back oh, to man. writing. So, well, they were very pleased that I was a history major. My dad loves the idea of history major. He always thought I was going to turn out to be a hotshot lawyer. That was my that was my intended career goal. He thought that I should be a hotshot lawyer. By the time I got to college, though, I thought, you know what? Gosh, maybe I'll just, I'll be, I'll teach history. I do love history. It's stories, right? It's stories about people. And then I'll write my novels on the side. I didn't have any time to write while I was in college. And I think that anybody who is a non-English major, who is also an aspiring writer, will sympathize with this. There was only time to write history papers, 50-page papers, 100-page papers. But still, by the time I graduated, I remember that one of my professors, my advisor, Dr. O'Brien, he was fantastic. He was so excited about my career as a future historian. He was so excited to introduce me to all of his you know, professors that he loved at Yale and get me into the historic community. And we had it all set up for me to go on to grad school afterwards. And I still remember the day I walked into his office and I said, Dr. O'Brien, I'm sorry, but I, I'm not going to go to grad school. I've thought about it a lot and I'm just going to be a novelist. And he just put his head down on the desk, <laughs> said nothing. And it was actually very satisfying though, because years later he went off on sabbatical and to do some work off in Oxford. But I remember I reconnected with him after Shiver came out and had just hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And I, no, no, it had been on the bestseller list for 40 weeks. That's what it was. Linger was the first one to hit number one. I remember it had been on the bestseller list forever. And he came back into the country and I walked back in and I had no idea if he would even recognize me. And he said, Maggie said, yes. And I handed him the book and I said, I just want to tell you, this has been on the bestseller list. And he was so happy and overwhelmed. And he said, this was the right decision for you. I figured that I would never hear from you again, but this is awesome. You're doing what you love. And we're still friends now. So it's happy ending. But I will say the first time I hit the bestseller list, I called my dad and I got him at work. He was at the ER and I said, I just hit the bestseller list and there was nothing. My father is a great storyteller as well. He's never silent. He's definitely an extrovert, but there was nothing but static at the other end of the line. And I said, dad, are you, are you there? He goes, I'm just speechless. So that was very satisfying. Not just satisfying. That's so heartwarming. <laughs> I'm assuming that you were able to weave some of like the things that you learned in your history class or the, the papers that you've written. Do you know what? I am so glad actually that I was a history major and not an English major because it forced me once again to think outside the box with my writing because I wasn't told how to write a novel instead. I was just told how to hit deadlines because that's what you do as a history writer. And research. Yes, exactly. And put things together so that they're succinct for someone else. And so those are all things that you have to use as a novelist. And moreover, it gave me things to write about. That's one of the best things I think that my entire um, path was that I had so much experience that I could draw on, not just the experience of writing about what it's like to be a writer, but writing about living. I remember reading when I was a kid that Paul McCartney started or got into the Beatles because he wanted to have something to write about. He wanted to be a novelist. And I, that stuck Wait, with me. Forever. Really? Yeah, I did not I know heard. that. I think and that's why he, that's the song paperback writer that they have. <gasps> oh. I don't know if that's true, but that's the story I heard. And as a kid, I always thought, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm going to live my life hugely and then I'm going to write about it. It's nice to hear fellow authors, fellow writers, fellow creatives living their dreams, creating their dreams, making things happen. But also what about the times where 
if you could remember one moment that was really one of the toughest moments in your life? Yeah, of course. Well, one of the things that you should know about me is that it's very difficult to get me down. People would say, so how many times did you get rejected before you got published? And I would say hundreds, literally hundreds. They said, well, is that depressing? And I said, no, it's not depressing because, you know, the whole idea was that, you know, you're trying to get yourself out there and they're not going to say yes until, you know, you please them. And there's no point tricking yourself into it. I'll just try harder until I impress them. And if you have goals that are far enough out, then uh, a speed bump is what any kind of negative situation would feel like, right? Because you're like, oh, well, this is crappy today, but, you know, the goal is actually five years out. So we're going to keep on heading for that. And so I always was this person that it was very difficult to indefatigable. Uh, nothing would really get me down. However, that said, and this is going to be slightly gross. I'm sorry. Uh, when I was, when did this actually start? I think it would have been around 2017. I was on tour and I used to be on tour a lot. I was on tour at one point, one day out of every three, I was always in a hotel or always in a bookstore, always on a plane. And I was on tour and I just couldn't do it. I just collapsed. Actually, right after an event, there's a photograph of me laying on the pavement. I was just, I couldn't, I couldn't make myself get up and go on. I was incredibly sick. I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I never really got any better. While they were trying to work it out, we eventually worked out. And I mean, it took a very long time. I couldn't stay awake during it. I had crazy allergic reactions. And the worst thing about it was that I had this deep and penetrating brain fog where I was confused all the time. Folks would come to my door and they'd say, I have a package for you. And I would look at the address and I'd say, no, that's not my address. And of course, it would be my address, but I couldn't read numbers. I would forget my own telephone number. I wouldn't be able to have an interview like this because my words would get stuck. I would forget how, what, how to say words. And eventually, after being screened for you know early dementia and all kinds of terrifying things, they discovered, this is the gross part, that I had hookworms in my face. Wait, what? Yes, right. I, I didn't even know that was a thing. Nobody really did. I mean, it's... It's not really a thing. You don't even have to be worried about it. No reader should go away from this thinking, wow, I wonder if I have hookworms in my face. You don't. Just basically people do not have hookworms in their face. But I did. And it took forever to diagnose because no one has hookworms in their face. And because they've been there for so long, they'd caused so much damage to my body, so much inflammation all over that even once we got rid of them, it lingered forever, especially this brain fog, which I still, to a certain extent, have at this point. It's, I mean, this is 2019 and this started in 2017. No, even a little bit before, because the collapse definitely happened after the fog started. And so I was trying to make a living as a novelist with books on deadline while having brain fog. So normally when I got the like writer's block, I would just, you know, take the work that I didn't like and I'd put it into an outtakes folder is what I called it. And then I would just start writing again. And what I would do when I had brain fog is that I would sit down and I was trying to write all the crooked saints and I would spend every single day just staring at the same paragraph for hours. And I would try and work out a sentence and I would look at it and I would squint and read it out loud, try and make it make sense. And then the next morning I would come and look at it and realize it didn't even look like it was in English. And I had to highlight the whole thing and put it into outtakes and do it again and again. And that book took me a solid year of writing. And it was literally 12 to 14 hour days of me sitting there and staring at it, trying to figure out how to do it. And I remember the real breakthrough came when a friend of mine who is a professional psychic, Melissa Sonova, she's very creepy, the creepiest person I know. She called me up and she said, Maggie, we got to talk about your life. <laughs> I'm like, um, 
No, no, I don't think so. I was in a very bad mood at this time, as you can imagine. I was not feeling indefatigable. I was feeling like the one thing that I definitely wanted to keep my brain was the one thing I couldn't have. And so she said, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. You're going to keep a journal. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. I'm, I'm gifted with words. She goes, it's going to be easy, Maggie. So what you're going to do is in the journal, you wake up and you're going to decide what percentage of yourself you are and write that percentage down. Like if you're a 10% Maggie or 80% Maggie. And then you're going to write down what you did that day. And I said, Melissa, if this is going to be some inspirational thing where I'm supposed to look back and see how much I actually got done, she goes, no, I would never try and be inspirational to you, Maggie. It's fine. What you're going to do is you're going to write down 80% days, 10% days, and eventually you're going to have a guide, a Bible to yourself. You will be able to know what you actually can get done on an 80% day or a 40% day. And so when you wake up and it's a 20% day, you're not going to waste those 12 hours sitting in that chair trying to write. Because guess what? You're going to delete it all. So on a 20% day, you get up and you say, I'm 20%. You have permission to do whatever you can actually get done on a 20% day. Go watch a show with your kids. Go work outside in the garden because you can do that without your brain. Do whatever you can get done, but don't waste it writing. But if you wake up and you have an 80% day, you better cancel every other plan and you write that book. And that is how I finished that book was by learning when it was okay to push through it. And when it was pointless, when I was wasting my time just sitting there and doing it. And I would say that is the hardest challenge of my writing life. And it's definitely getting better now. I've been working with amazing specialists. I have more and more days where my brain is clear. But it's still, I have a journal and every single day, I still write down a percentage at the beginning of the day. And that tells me whether or not I get to work that day. Wow. Okay. Well, today it's a 90% day, by the way. So, well, thank you for spending your 90% day with me. <laughs> Seriously. Right. I already did my writing this morning. When it's a 90% day, I get up and I do my words. I do not, I do not mess around. This friend of yours. She's amazing. I recommend her highly. Not she's the thing is she is a professional psychic, Melissa, but she's also an amazing human as far as she d doesn't mince words. She would never blow smoke up here, but she gives great advice. Where is she from? St. Louis. We're actually doing a, a project together. I had a deck of tarot cards that I drew art for, The Raven Cycle. And she's actually writing the book. I'm doing a, a deck that goes kind of sort of along with the Scorpio races. And she's writing the book that goes along with it. So hard love. Maggie, thank you so much for sharing all of this. And I was not aware of this. And I didn't even know this is something that could be caused. Okay, this is a really silly question. Is hookworm something that's usually in the stomach area, like where you get in the intestines? This is a really gross answer, but normally it's in your feet because you get them from walking around barefoot. Like if kids go camping or like if I because I love camping and I'm just like, I guess, you know, rolling around in the grass or something, then I, I could get it on my face, too. Well, technically speaking, you have to. They, this is this is really gross. I'm super sorry. But you have to be walking in a place where animals have crept, basically, because they live in that. So normally you would get it by walking through a farmyard or something like that with bare feet. And then it takes them time to burrow through your, into your feet. So it's very unusual for them to make their way up. I mean, you would have to really be walking on your face, basically. It would be a, it would be, it would be a heck of a thing. And so they're still not exactly sure how they managed to make it up there, but it obviously it took them a long time to get there and they had been there for quite a while. 
But the thing is, I tell people is that with brain fog and all of these anti or all the inflammatory things that I had, there's actually lots of different ways that you can end up with brain fog. A lot of autoimmune disorders sit through a lot of autoimmune symptoms, a lot of like chronic fatigue, a lot of cancer treatments, all of these things can also cause this. So I try and tell other writers, Melissa's advice, whenever I hear that they're having problems with brain fog, because it doesn't matter how you got the brain fog or how you have your off days. It still works as great advice. Yes, it does. I know there are several people in our community who've jumped in our private Facebook group uh, mentioning there are days they feel stuck. There are days that they can't move forward and it feels hazy and they're not sure what to do. And this is such fantastic advice. And just to hear that it's something that worked for you, especially, is just incredible. How are you doing today? Like, you know, this month or even this week? I had a, a weird setback because I ended up going to BookCon, which was a fantastic experience. BookCon is insane. Readers there are. It's um, the forward-facing, the public-facing part of BEA. And so it was such a cool thing to see readers after such a long time of not being on the road. But my body rebelled. I was definitely not ready to be there and it caused a flare. But I've worked my way back again. And uh, unfortunately, it means that I won't be touring for Call Down the Hawk, which I have very mixed feelings about because I love seeing people right after they've read it. My favorite story actually of this was I was working on the tour for the Raven King, the last book in the Raven cycle. It was in Denver. I remember this vividly. I was signing and signing and signing. I've been signing for two hours solid and the line is still going without any pause. And then suddenly there is a pause and I can't figure out why there is a pause. Why do I get to take a break? And I look up and the, the readers that I've just finished signing for are laughing and they're pointing at the person who was waiting to come up to get their book signed. And the person who is waiting is reading The Raven King. They have been reading The Raven King, which they just bought that day in line because they've been in line for so long and they've just gotten to the last page. And so I could see him reading it rapidly and then he turns the page to the last line. He turns it back to where he just looked and back again. And then he bursts into tears and they're laughing hysterically. And I look at him and I say, oh, you can come up now. And he looks at me the author of The Raven King, and he says, I need a minute. Anyway, so that's my favorite touring moment. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Okay, so are you going to maybe postponing or rescheduling that? We're hoping that I'll be able to head out in 2020, but it's easier to ease my way back up than it is to fix myself after I've had a flare. So we're going to be, we're being intelligent this time. We'll see. And I'm hoping to make up for it because even though I'm not going to be on the road, I actually have a lot of book projects coming out. So I'm hoping that uh, they'll, they'll forgive me because they'll have lots of words for me instead. Okay. That's exciting. I find that really challenging when, you know, now that I am getting older, I, I used to be able to travel really spontaneously, drop everything and just go. But now I'm noticing I'm more of a creature of habit. If I have too many things happening uh, randomly, I will get very emotionally drained. It just drains me out to the point where I will have some hazy days and I can't really get to work or I could just be sitting on my computer and staring at it. And I'm like, wait, just five hours just went by. What the hell did I do? So yeah. I... 
number one, like being you guys being able to hop on the schedule, usually, you know, the author touring and like everything along with because I know it's a big machine, right? The team, everybody's talking like, okay, this is your schedule. But then when did you I mean, I know this time around you, you knew you had to postpone for you, you know, but was this something that you had to learn to speak up about rather than feeling the weight of, oh my gosh, I got to keep up. I got to keep up. Oh no, absolutely. I toured for so long, dragging my body from place to place, just kind of pulling myself together, especially because it's quite a lucky thing as an author to get the support of your publisher, to be able to tour. I mean, it's a thing that you wouldn't want to turn down in a cavalier way, right? Not every single author gets that opportunity. And we work so hard as authors to get to that point that it's very difficult to say, okay, wait a second, can I afford to take time off? And then am I ruining everything to do this? And so for me, I would have never, I would have never said no. I would have dragged myself out there. And I still remember that at BookCon this year, I was there and before I had to go, I went and stood in the shower and then I sat in the shower and I just lay there for about a half hour. And I told myself, get up get up. And then a timer on my phone went off. And that was when I slithered out of there. I got myself to the convention. In between signings, I was sleeping underneath um, one of the tables in our publisher area and dragging myself up. And I would have never, it would have never occurred to me to say no. It was only actually after that when I had a very severe Addisonian crisis where literally you can't, I mean, you can't fight through it. There's no way to go through it. That my body said, okay, no, but we're saying no for you. And my publisher was gracious enough. And they said, you know what, this is ridiculous. <laughs> the time is, we're drawing the line here. You need to get better. And I was so grateful because it was a thing that I would have never said for myself, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm grateful to hear that you have a good team behind you who did see that and didn't push against that. And instead told you rest up and take care of yourself. I know that you write a lot of books that are very makes women proud to be who we are. Um, so how do you feel like you've approached or challenged society's expectations of women and men and this societal norms? I know you're very much known for being the person that challenged the norm, recognizing strengths of women. Do you know what's interesting is that I don't know that you can give me credit for going out there and consciously thinking, especially at first, I'm going to change the way society thinks about women. The very first reason why I became the way I became is because I was homeschooled when I was a kid. I grew up in the middle of nowhere. The only people that I really spent a lot of time with were my parents and my siblings. And my parents had, uh, they're very unusual, crazy people. I love them. They are very bizarre though. And they don't have really set gender roles. Whatever we said we wanted to do, we were allowed to do. And also whatever we had to do on the farm or whatever, we also had to do. It didn't matter if you were a girl, a guy, or whatever, you still had to, you know, pull your weight. And so I grew up in this kind of um, gender fluid sort of environment where I didn't have to dress as one, any particular gender. And that made me into the adult that I am today, which was I can do whatever I want. Imagine my rude awakening when I got to college, when that is not how everyone else saw women at all. Instead, as you've discovered, as every woman has discovered, we have a very set rules around who it is that we're supposed to be, how it is that we are um, looked at if we encroach into male spaces. 
I am really into cars. I raced cars for a while. I love cars. I had a midlife crisis and I was an automotive journalist and I write for road and track still. And so I'm often in male spaces. And for me, it's just me doing my job, right? It's just me doing what I love. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not out there to try and show that women are equal or whatever. In my head, I didn't have an agenda. I was just being Maggie. However, that in itself is a statement of rebellion for a woman to do whatever she wants to and not just say a woman can do whatever she wants to that is like anarchy. And so the amount of pushback that I've gotten from that has made me more self-aware and realized that what I take for granted is that because I don't see boundaries as well as other people, it's easier for me to break rules. I don't feel the rules as hard as other people. And so it's not as courageous as it might be for someone who has been raised their entire life to look like what a girl is supposed to look like. For me, I would just go blowing through these rules and then later I would turn back and they're like, Maggie. And so learning to hold a hand back to women who are afraid to take that first step has really been what I've focused with online. I would say that I do that more in my public facing persona as opposed to in my books, because I would never want my books to feel like teachable moments. Obviously they're full of the things that I believe, but I don't want to be pedagogical either. So instead, what I try and do is instead of writing the strong female character, a phrase that I despise because no one ever asks me how I write strong male characters, I try and write women being anything. They can be villains. They can be weak. They can be strong. They can be liars. They can be gentle. Women can be anything. And for me, that's the most important thing to put into my novel. So whatever it is that you're looking for as a woman growing up, you might find something to hold on to to teach you how to be a heroic version of yourself in the books. All right. If you don't mind, I'm going to jump in now with the listener questions. They're very excited about this. Got a lot of exclamation marks, capitalized letters here going on. First one is from Jennifer Alice Provost. She asks, what is the most extreme bit of research you've ever done? Have you learned a new language skill or traveled off the beaten path for the sake of your story? Gosh, the most extreme. I can tell you the one which is probably um, the most <laughs> the, t- the most time consuming. When I first started writing the Scorpio races, almost every single one of my novels, I start out with a sense of place or of mood. I wanted to know what kind of book it's going to be, how it's going to make people feel. And with the Scorpio races, I had not only a mood, I wanted to feel nostalgic and traditional, like an old dusty classic that you found it, in you know your mom's house under the bed that you didn't realize existed, but also raw and powerful, like touched with nature. But I also had an image and the image in my head was of a boy riding a red horse at the base of chalk cliffs. And so as I was touring, I kept on thinking, I need to find these cliffs to find out what everything else feels like around them. I want to know the mood of the cliffs. I want to make readers feel the sand between their teeth. That's the goal. Every place I went to on tour, I would search for where the closest cliffs were and I would go to them. I went to cliffs in California. I went to cliffs in Ireland. I went to cliffs in the north of England. I went to cliffs in the south of England. But the worst one is this. I was in Paris on tour and for once I was traveling with my husband. I never get to travel with him basically, but I got he was on this tour with me and it was December. It was nearly Christmas and our anniversary is in December. And my event got canceled in Paris because it was snowing for the first time in Paris in 18 years. My French editor turned to me and said, you know what, Maggie, 
you're here in the city of love. It's almost Christmas. It's almost your anniversary. You have your husband with you. Your event's been canceled because we have snow, beautiful snow. And you know what? Go out there, you crazy kids into the, into the city of love and enjoy yourselves. Get out there. And so I, it's possible that Paris is beautiful in the snow, but I wouldn't know because I turned to my husband and I said, lover, rent a car. We're driving to the cliffs of Normandy. So I have no idea what Paris looks like in the snow, but I do know the cliffs of Normandy are, they're very attractive, but they are not the cliffs that I needed. I actually needed the cliffs in Yorkshire. Those are the ones I stole for it, but that's probably the most time consuming bit of research that I did. I take my, my location research very seriously. I don't need to know the bits that you can Google. I want to know what it feels like, because I think that that's my real strength as a writer is uh, changing people's emotions, making them feel like they're there. Next one, Alyssa Coleman. She said, I've always admired Maggie's ability to write beautiful descriptions. For example, in The Raven Boys, the mountains aren't just visible in the background, they're ghosted in blue, which is such a vivid and specific image. Does she have any tips or techniques to share about crafting descriptions? This kind of goes along with that, you know, what you just shared about being in the space during your research and wanting to make people feel. So that was actually a perfect segue. So I thought that was a great question from Melissa. That is a great question. It's like a 50 point question. <laughs> I got a question from a reader a long time ago, a school kid, and it basically spoke for many other questions that I'd gotten from many other school kids where basically they all come in and they ask in a very aggressive way. My teacher has asked me to read your books for metaphor and says that when the curtains are red, that means people are angry, true or false. This is wrong, right? Confirm or deny. And they want to hear you say that basically as a, as a writer, no, that they don't mean anything. And the truth is that, you know, sometimes, yes, when you walk a character through a scene and you say that the curtains are red, it just means the curtains are red. But actually, good writing comes from being able to uh, move the emotional furniture around in a reader's head without them knowing that you're doing it. Once they see you actually doing it, the illusion is ruined. The whole idea is to make them feel a thing and not know why they're feeling the thing. And so making the curtains red or ghosting the mountains is a way that you can move things around without them knowing it. So if you want to give them a feeling in the Raven Cycle, for instance, which is what that quote is from, that things are eerie, that anything could happen, that the supernatural is plausible. If you ghost those mountains, instead of just, you know, putting a a more perfunctory description in, in the background, you've planted the seed of the idea of this eeriness. Any kind of word choice that you can do where you swap out an ordinary one for one, which kind of instead pushes your little mood agenda, means that you're doing hard work without it feeling like hard work for the reader. And the other thing I would say is that when I write my descriptions, they always have to do two jobs. So if I'm describing a character's car, I'm actually describing the character as well. It can't just be the car. It's got to reflect back on whatever is living beside it. If I'm describing the room, I'm also describing the people in it. It's got to do two jobs. Jody Armsby Gallegos, she said, I am such a huge fan of yours. I'd love to know about the complexity of plotting a series as detailed as The Raven Cycle. Did you plot out the entire series before beginning or work one book at a time with a general idea as to the direction of the story. Thank you so much in advance. Um, I should say right up front that I don't actually enjoy episodic um, viewing or reading. I don't know. Do you have a preference? Do you like watching um, TV that can go on forever and ever? Or do you like something that has a finite point? I don't mind. As long as it's good storytelling, I really enjoy both. How about you? See, because I feel like most people actually enjoy that episodic storytelling. For me, I want to have 
an end. I love stylization. That's part of it. And so much of the most basic stylization is beginning, middle, end, right? Knowing where you're going, where the arcs are going to go. And so for me, having a hard end is really satisfying. So I don't know that I could ever write an ongoing series not knowing where I'm headed. Now that said, I don't actually do a ton of plotting beforehand. I wrote two page summaries of each of the books in the Raven cycle before I pitched it and sold it. I needed to know a rough idea of where all the character arcs were going. I had to know the twists. And I think that was basically it. I wanted to allow myself the freedom to explore within there. I knew that if I wrote a more detailed outline, I would just I would just change it and lie anyway. So really the big emotional beats, the big feelings, I wanted to know what every single book felt like, like I said before. And I need to know, like I said, enough to know as a reader, as you're reading it, oh, Steve Otter knew where she was headed. All right. The next one I feel like is a really great overall question I feel like would answer, uh, would give inspiration to basically the entire community. So this one is from Yasmin Fisher. She said, oh, wow, Maggie is one of my all-time favorite authors. I've traveled six hours before just to see her in Germany. She was one of the first authors to make me cry, and I'm still obsessed with Cole St. Clair. She put a heart eyes emoji <laughs> face. Uh, I'm, That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm honestly happy to soak up whatever advice she has to share. However, I'm wondering, looking back at her career and all those books, what advice she would give to debut author Maggie? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I actually really enjoyed my debut process. I was not published first with Scholastic, a major house. I was published with a small house, Flux. And I actually, the reason why I ended up going with them is because originally I sent off my manuscripts to both editors and agents when I was starting out. And an editor at Flux, a small house, read one of my manuscripts and said, you know what, I, I really like this. Could you revise it? And uh We'll take it to acquisitions. And so I revised it. It was a sprawling book about homicidal fairies. And I sent it back to him and he said, great. And he took it to acquisitions and he came back and said, sorry. They said, he said, it wasn't really there for us yet. But you know what? Would you send me the next book that you write? And I was so encouraged by this. This was fantastic. I know some people would have thought this is a rejection, but it wasn't, right? It was a rejection with a dot, dot, dot afterwards. And so this editor had said, um, send me your next thing. So I wrote another book. It took me a whole year. I sent that to him and he said, you know what? This is definitely better, but I'm still thinking about your first book. What do you think about revising it again? Only this time, don't suck at it. What? <laughs> I said, okay, awesome. I will try harder. <laughs> and I learned so much from writing that book in between that indeed I was able to write rewrite this book so much better. So I s had these three chapters that I revised. I sent it to him and I said, like this? And he goes, that's that's it. Stop right there. Amazing. I'm going to acquisitions. And they bought it on the basis of those three chapters. And this was such a small house that the first print run was 2,000 copies. It didn't get into Barnes & Noble, which at the time meant that it was basically invisible. There was nowhere else for it to go. It came out like a little tiny ripple. All it had to do was overcome the advance that they had paid me of $2,000, which is we bought a nice mattress. It was very exciting and we paid our rent. It was very thrilling. But there was no pressure. And I loved that because other debuts that I've seen now, they, they get the first splashy debut that I got when I first went to Scholastic, which was they said, you know, it's going to be amazing. And they made a big deal for it. And it was going to be positioned to hit the bestseller list. But that means that if it didn't hit the bestseller list or it didn't hit those markers, it for a first book, that's a ton of weight. And then when you write your second book, you have to do it knowing that you have that 
that expectation of the huge advance or the the house pressure. And it, I didn't have that. I had this quiet kind of um, easy step stool way into debut. And so what I would say is that advice for debuts is forget what it was that you were you were promised as uh, like when your publisher acquired you. Don't try and shoot for the big bucks. Don't try and shoot for the external validation. You're still learning. Your second book is going to be so much better than your first book. Focus on that. Don't think about what other people are saying. Uh, as a race car driver, one of the things they tell you is don't watch the person who is driving in front of you because you'll take the same line as them. And sometimes their line is bad. You want to drive your race. And so that's as a debut, it's hard. Twitter, especially definitely encourages you to compare yourself to other debuts. Don't do it. Watch the road. Just watch the road. That was so good. I love that race car driving tip. I will use that for go-karting. Thank you. It Uh, also works on the road. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Tips, Maggie, Steve Otter. What are you most excited about right now? Gosh, I have to say, so I've had to completely reconfigure my life because of the health situation. And it's been amazing, actually. It has, there's, you very seldom get a hard end in your life that's not terrible. It's not death. That's not, you know, just a clapping shut up the book. And instead I got this hard end though, that said, you know what, we're not taking everything from you, but you can't travel all the time. You have to stay home. And the thing is I have loads of things that I love to do here. I have my music studio. I have my art studio. I have all these books that need to be done. And so I've been really taking this time at home to create tons of stuff. And so even though I had a big break between a lot of my books in the last couple of years, this year coming out, let's see, I have called on the Hawk, which is a trilogy opener coming out in November. And I love it. It's, um, the first time I've really successfully, I think, um, managed to meld fantasy and thriller in a way that I find appealing. Uh, next year, I have my first ever graphic novel coming out with DC. It's, uh, I can't say really anything about it except for it's Swamp Thing. It's a reboot of Swamp Thing, which those of you who read my stuff should know how much I love nature. So it makes sense. And it's illustrated by Morgan Beam. And it was such a blast to write. And what else do I have? I've been working on TV writing for the TV um, adaptation of the Raven Cycle. So oh, that's, that's awesome. You get to write your own adaptation. Yes, I was tricked into writing the pilot. So that was a fun learning experience. And I've been doing loads of art. Like I said, I've got this tarot deck coming out. And so I've got 54 more pieces of art to do for that one, but I'm having such a good time with it. So yeah, I feel like I'm having, I get up in the morning and I'm excited to create in all different forms. Oh my gosh. This is so exciting. Congratulations on all fronts. Please let us know if there's any books that you recommend that you really love that you find that our community should check out, whether it's for their writing, for their craft related tips, or if it's just a really damn good book that you're like, oh, this is how you write a book. Oh gosh. Um, I know this is not a brand new book, but I still really loved it. Less by Andrew Sean Greer. It doesn't have magic in it, but it's uh, such a a light, whimsical, and also sort of a, a sad comedy about uh, a guy who finds out that his his betrothed, his true love, is marrying someone else and has a, a massive midlife crisis over it. I highly recommend that one. I loved the voice in that one. What else will I say? Oh, yes. You know what? I'm going to do deep character stuff. Someday this pain will be useful to you is a, a much older young adult novel. And I actually don't know how it holds up, but... I do remember that it is the very first novel I read that made me think I'm no longer going to write book people. I'm going to write real people. I'm going to write people that I miss because I read that book 
and I missed the main character. It's not really about anything. It's about a 19-year-old who uh, graduates from high school and doesn't know what to do with his life and thinks maybe he'll move to Iowa. But it doesn't matter what it's about because it's about a person. So I'm going to say I'm going to say those two, I think, for now. Perfect. Okay, we'll have those listed in your show notes page so people can click over and just check it out. And please let us know where everyone can find you on social media. Oh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm M Steve Otter. I'm also on Instagram, Maggie underscore Steve Otter. I think that should get you there. And on Facebook, Maggie Steve Otter, really, it's me. And that wraps up my conversation with Maggie Steve Otter. Maggie, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing all of this valuable advice for our listeners. I appreciate you being so vulnerable and open. Thank you. Thank you. Storytellers, wasn't that such an insightful conversation? Now we're going to jump right into my conversation with your fellow 88 Cups of Tea storyteller, Angeline Bully. Hey, listeners, I am so excited to introduce to you one of your very own storytellers from our 88 Cups of Tea community. We have Angeline Bully with us today. Angeline, how are you? I am wonderful. Thank you for having me. I am so, so thrilled to get to chat with you. And why don't we just jump right in? What are you working on right now? Well, uh, I pitched my manuscript on DV Pit, and I had a great response to it. I had over 80 agents and editors express interest. And so I received multiple offers, and I am signed with Faye Bender of the book group. <gasps> Congratulations. That's so exciting. Can you give us a snapshot of your project that you're working on? Sure. My pitch was Indigenous Veronica Mars. When 18-year-old Donis witnesses the murder of a loved one, she must use her science geekery and knowledge about her Ojibwe culture to protect her tribal community before she loses anyone else. Can we get into what the inspiration was for your story? Well, I think when I was growing up, I never read a story that featured anyone like me. Uh, my dad is Native. He's Ojibwe. We're from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And my mom is non-Native. And I never felt like I was in a story. I have children now and I've worked in Indian education my whole career. And so I just thought it was important to write a story, particularly for young women, in particular for women who might be Native and maybe not have a strong connection to their community to just show them what one young woman goes through as she becomes a young woman and she wants to be a strong Native woman like her Aunt Teddy and just realizing that we admire these wise women, but we don't fully appreciate the struggle and all of the choices that it takes to become one. And so that's what my story is really about. What was the biggest hurdle or challenge you feel, you know, reflecting back, whether it's in your writing journey or in life that you've gone through that has impacted your work or had some type of influence over your work? Well, it's taken me 10 years to write my story and six drafts. And I would say the first four drafts were complete page one rewrites. And so just really sticking with it. I always knew the beginning. I always knew the ending. But so much has changed and grown and become deeper and richer uh, as my as I developed my craft, as I learned more and as I just grew as a writer. 
Oh, okay. This is, I feel like you are someone that our community can look to for some advice. Uh, what you've been learning just overall, your entire experience as of today, what can you share with those who are preparing to show their manuscript, whether it's to critique partners or even those who are ready to just jump in the querying trenches? Can you share a little bit of word of advice or anything uplifting for them to just keep going? So living in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which I did for a long time, I now live and work in Washington, D.C., all those years that I was writing and I felt very alone and you give your story or drafts of it to friends and family and maybe some other writers and people who love you, they want you to succeed. And so the quality of feedback that they give you, they have a hard time letting you know what needs to be done <laughs> to <true>. strengthen <laughs> your story. And so I attended a writer's workshop that was specifically for Native writers. It was called Loon Song Turtle Island. I connected with this amazing group of Native kidlit writers. So Cynthia Leetich, uh, Don Quigley, and I finally felt like I found this community of writers. And what I was so thrilled to find out was how supportive that community was. And it just gave me the biggest boost to just hang in there and keep working on, on my craft. And there were a few editors that were at that retreat, and they were enormously helpful too. Cheryl Klein, Arthur Levine, and uh, Yolanda Scott attended that. And they were just so generous and giving of their advice and guidance to us. Thank you for sharing that. And also, what an incredible community. Final question, can we wrap it up with you letting us know what you would love for the world to take away from your story once it's out? I do want to call out to the We Need Diverse Books mentorship program. They will probably be opening up their applications for the mentorship program this year. I think applications are due in October. And I was selected uh, for this year for young adult mentorship. And my mentor is Francisco Stork. And that has been just a wonderful support in terms of he provided feedback on my manuscript and really helped me a lot. The other point that I wanted to make is that there are so few books about Native Americans that are by Native Americans. And so uh, I, I just think it's really important for the publishing industry to really look at, there are so many quality authors out there that are writing wonderful stories and just need that consideration. Oh, I love that. If there are any, you know, this is, um, I would love to share if, if you're comfortable, um, Letting our our listeners know right now if there's any titles off the top of your head or names of the authors that you feel like we should check out and at least have a look into and check out their work. Sure, I, I'll provide I can provide that in some notes, but, um, you know, young women. We used to have coming of age ceremonies for young women. We still do on my reservation, but I felt like my book was one way for women who are Native to be able to get some of those teachings and guidance and have it in a, in a way of 
about this story about this young woman who is strong and smart and flawed and real, and she makes some really poor decisions along the way. And I love my character. I love her story and what Firekeeper's Daughter is all about. Oh, gosh, I am so excited about your work to get out there in the world for everybody to have in their homes. This is such an honor, Angeline. I'm so thrilled about this. Please let everybody know where they could find you online to keep updated and just to basically keep an eye out on everything that you have coming up for yourself. Sure. On Twitter, I'm at FineAngeline. <laughs> and then my website is AngelineBully.com. So A-N-G-E-L-I-N-E-B-O-U-L-L-E-Y.com. Angeline, you were so incredible. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate this. And congratulations on the four-year anniversary. And just miigwech, thank you for sharing this opportunity with four emerging writers. It's, it's incredible. All right, storytellers, that wraps up our entire episode for today. Thank you for hanging out and listening in. As always, please be sure to stop by and say hi to Maggie Stiebotter on Twitter at m. Steve Otter or on Instagram at Maggie underscore Steve Otter. Please also take the time to stop by Angeline Bully's Twitter at Fine Angeline. That's F-I-N-E-A-N-G-E-L-I-N-E. To download Maggie's writing prompt and to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode along with tweetable quotes and timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Maggie's show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Maggie dash For any of you who are looking for an online space that's super intimate and would love to get to know fellow storytellers from our community, head on over to facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea to join our private Facebook group. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.